What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mind Your Money, a show that highlights people and stories that will inspire you to get your money right. This week on the show, I'm so, so excited to talk to Erin. We've been going back and forth a little while with scheduling, and I'm so excited to have her on the show officially. Erin is the founder of Her Personal Finance. She's also a financial educator that you may recognize in the space. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you, Nelly. So excited to be here. And I have to say, when I first started and was dipping my toes into starting an Instagram and trying to get my message out there. You were one of the first creators that I saw and sort of, I saw, I saw your profile and thought if I can be like her one day. So it's really an honor to get to be here. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. You know, it's so funny. A lot of people will mention like, oh, some of the early stuff that I posted. And I like, honestly, when I started posting these things, I did not think at all that this was going to be like people who I had never met were going to see it. I just thought like these videos are going to help people that I send it to my coworkers, my friends, my family. But you know, it's the nature of, of creating something on the internet. You literally never know who will find it, who will see it, who will be inspired by it. I mean, you know this because of your work right now. It is definitely... The moment when you start to have strangers showing up in your DMs and talking to you about what you're doing is, is definitely an exciting but strange moment because I think in the beginning, and I think it's so hard to get through the beginning, but in the beginning you're talking to people you know, you have a small audience, and then slowly over time that starts to change, which is exciting. Definitely. I think it's one of my favorite parts is to get these random stories from people to like who are, you know, really essentially saying the impact that the work I've been doing has on them. It's just, it's always so nice to just get those little reminders that, hey, this work is impactful. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> well, but it's always tricky with money, you know? And that's why I think when, when it comes to money, I obviously, you know, people, it's so taboo. People are so uncomfortable talking about these things. And so I always start the show with two questions because I feel like these two questions just kind of get to the thick of it. It's like, let's just talk about the bad stuff and get it out of the way so that this conversation is no longer uncomfortable and weird. <laughs> and then let's talk about some of the highlights so that we can see, you know, both sides of this thing. Cause money has, you know, there's some troubles and challenges with money, but there's also some really great highlights and moments of joy. So those two questions are, the first one is what is your biggest money regret? A time where you spent way too much money, either on a purchase or an experience, but you wish you could go back in time and just take it all back. I wish I had negotiated my financial aid for undergrad. Oh, talk about that. I've listened to some of your other episodes and I know for a lot of people, it's often like a consumer good that you splurge on, but I think back all the time. So I ended up between undergrad and grad having $184,000 in student loans Ooh. and I got into my undergrad and they gave me not that great of a financial aid package. And I don't think I understood that because I'd gotten into other schools with better financial aid that I could have negotiated. And I'll also say, you know, I could have gone to Texas. I, I write about this sometimes. I'm from Texas. My, both my parents went there, would have been able to go there effectively for free, had a scholarship. And I really had my heart set on, on going to school out of state. I was really passionate about politics, wanted to be in Washington, DC. Georgetown was my dream school so excited that I got the education, but the idea that by spending an hour on the phone, I might've been able to save myself $20,000 is sort of hard to stomach these days. I really hope that, you know, younger listeners, it's, it's always, it's hard because you never know like who's listening, but if there are listeners on the younger side, or if you're listening to this and you know, somebody who is at that age where they're about to go off to college or just kind of getting into college, these are skills that like, 
or not even skills. These are ideas that nobody talks openly about. So I don't know how they're supposed to circulate around and like, you know, be useful to people when they're just kind of kept hidden in these little, you know, treasure boxes that nobody gets to open. It's like, these are huge nuggets of wisdom, like negotiating your financial aid. How, like, how is that thought going to drop into an 18, 19 year old person's head? Unless somebody tells them that that's something that they can be empowered to do because you you're thinking like, Oh, this is aid. This they're helping me. How dare I go back and say, uh, I'm, I don't like this. Or like, let's talk about this. How much more can you help me? I mean, just feels really weird and counterintuitive and yet it's effective. And it's actually something that a lot of people know about and do and take advantage of it every single year. And the people who don't just, you know, later on maybe end up regretting it like you, Aaron. It just, it's something that you definitely more people need to be talking about openly and just discussing and especially talking about when it works, what strategies worked and, you know, how did you go about doing it so that you were successful? Yes, and I'd say if you're applying to grad school now, so maybe you are a little older, same thing is applicable. And one of the big lessons in life I've had is everything is negotiable. So always ask the worst they can do is say no. And if you have multiple offers, you have leverage. And I don't think I understood that. And it is hard when you're 18. It all was like monopoly money. It was like, what does it mean that I'm going to have, you know, 75K in undergrad loans? Like I, I truly could not understand that when I was making the decision of where to go to college. The way society is set up where the people that are that are like in your cohort or like closely um, connected to you end up being like the same age or maybe just one or year one year up or above or below you. And so you're kind of all going through the same things at the same time. I sort of wish that society created or that we had a society where it was normal to have these mixed generation groupings of like social circles and friends because the only way you would know is if somebody who's out of college, who's now dealing with it, could shed some light on that perspective on that experience. So you could be like, oh, whoa, wait, that's what it's going to be like when I graduate. Like, these are the salaries I can expect instead of my six figures straight out of college. Like, you know, it's just, you just don't know. And until somebody who's living that talks to you, but it's very rare that you at 19 would have a conversation with somebody who's 26. It's just, it's just so unlikely. Yes. And I'll say one of the reasons I got into this is, you know, I was really blessed. I, well, I guess in some ways blessed, in some ways I've made really expensive education um, decisions my whole life. So got into Harvard Business School. Awesome. Although then you look at the price back and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm almost done with my undergrad loans. What do you mean? I'm going to end up with another, you know, six figures in debt now. But they just started a class uh, for second years at Harvard Business School to talk about money because you would think, oh, you graduate with an MBA. You wow. get some sort of financial education with this, but it's all about a corporate balance sheet. That's there right. Nothing about what to do with your own money. And I That's actually right. realized, particularly, there's so many internationals who are coming to the US for the first time. They decide often to stay in the United States. And then they're like, who is Roth? What is right. 401k? And yeah. And you realize that there's really very little to get someone acclimated to this new system, especially if you're coming from a country that had a pension system where you don't really right. have to worry about retirement and all of a sudden healthcare. I find that that totally messes with people where you're like, wait, I have to pay what? And what's the premium and the deductible? So yeah. it was really nice. I got to speak to a class yesterday, definitely not part of the whole curriculum, but they're starting to say, oh, we need to talk about these money decisions because everybody's making these choices and you're in your late twenties and thirties when everything happens in life, but no one talks to you about how to navigate those decisions. 
I had a professor at Brown reach out to me recently and say that they're just now kickstarting like an, a class that you can take about personal financial literacy. And I was like, it's about damn time. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, I just don't understand why you wouldn't do that. And the fact that the, the argument has been for many years that it's not rigorous enough to really make like a full, you know, semester course out of it. And I am like, that just means that you ain't doing it right. This stuff is very intense. I mean, critical thinking is so necessary to think through decisions because there's so many possible outcomes that you could like that you could have like so, four different people will have four totally different solutions to a financial problem because it's all based on values and context and their personal preferences and, you know, their interpretation of, of you know, markets and the economy and all kinds of things. And so that's, you know, for me, that's like the definition of rigorous is when you have a case study and everybody's answer is different. And then there's not one right or wrong, one wrong answer. So I, yeah, I think it's just been an excuse for so long because money is just so taboo. They weren't sure how to approach it. And so I'm just glad these institutions are finally stepping up to the plate, <laughs> talking about personal finance. It's, it's just crazy how we skip to talking about business, the balance sheet of corporations. We talk about all these other things, entities, money, and people's money. We don't talk about our own money before that. And it just literally makes no sense so it's so hit or miss if you ever even get yeah. that growing up you know the joke like I learned about the the mitochondrial of the cell and trapezoids but I don't know anything about how to do my own taxes um and I actually think too sometimes it can backfire there's a woman who took my class who did like the stock market game in seventh grade and lost all her money in the stock market game and was like okay I can never invest because that's right I lost all my money in the stock market game in seventh grade I was like oh no that was not what they were trying to teach you although I guess they were they did get across that that investing <laughs> is risky especially in individual stocks I know I have such a like I have such a problem with that game I think I get it it just like it increases engagement. It gets people, it gets students hooked on the stock market. But when you play that game, the lessons are just so like not what we should be teaching students. The opposite of good investing is what they take away from that game. Like the game does not value diversification at all. It is all about luck. So the, the person who chooses the stock that ends up having the highest performance is the luckiest investor. That person is the quote unquote best investor. They, they win or their team wins. And it's like, why are we teaching? Why are we reinforcing <laughs> that kind of behavior? They should be having the most diversified investment, minimizing their risk and really taking, but you know, Okay, let's flip this on the on its head and start and stop talking about like the things that are kind of, you know, going wrong or like the regrets or kind of negative aspects around money. And let's talk about the positives. What is a time where you spent a lot of money? Uh, maybe it was just like crazy to other people looking in, but for you, it's worth it. You would spend it again in a heartbeat. My best friend from college got married in India over wow. December holiday, you know, Christmas and New Year's and my flight to get there was $2,200 and it was like a terrible Ooh. flight. I had to like fly through Cincinnati, oh, no. then to Paris, then to Delhi, but it was such an amazing week. And I have always, you know, I, I graduated and I had all these student loans. I was blessed that I got a pretty well-paying job right out of college. And I lived in pretty cheap places so that I could always say yes to travel. And, you know, spending $2,000 on a plane ticket is kind of crazy, but that experience was so worth it. And I have never once regretted it. And I think all the time about how much fun it was getting to be with her family and just participate in this really beautiful union of two people I love very much. I feel like there's something 
even extra special about leaving the country to go to a wedding and because it becomes an experience for like you know, days at a time it's not just like here you know where you travel maybe you drive for a couple hours or even if you if it's close by you go and it's been a couple hours and then it's over versus it really being this um extended celebration which i think is like so beautiful for for many reasons not just like or for many purposes not just marriages and weddings but it's it rarely happens and when it does it's usually in the context of like going to another country to celebrate you know something like that so that does sound really beautiful and i think your your point about being really intentional about how you're living and the lifestyle that you're creating so that you can choose to value the, you know, the things, put money behind the things that you value. So prioritizing low rent or low cost of living places is so important when you're just coming out of college, because one of the, like the number three top things that you literally just go over budget immediately out of college is transportation, housing, and food. And if you can cut those three down and be mindful in those three areas, just the amount of joy you get from being able to offset those costs and put that money towards the things that you really, really love and, you know, get to actually enjoy like travel or, you know, other types of experiences that might not just be, you know, rent and, and traveling to and from work in a nice car. Like it just makes such a big difference, especially at that young, at a younger age. Yes, and I think sometimes, so I'm from Houston, and everyone in Houston, you look at rent in DC, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so expensive, but I think one thing that I, I only really realized when I moved back to Texas as an adult was, yes, your rent is cheaper, but then I had a car payment, and I'd never had to have a car payment before, so in DC, my first five years out of undergrad, I was spending $750 a month on a one room in this big five-bedroom, five-bath house. It was huge. But, you know, 750 was pretty cheap for DC and I didn't have a car payment. So it was 750 full stop wow. versus when I moved back to Houston, I was a little older. So I, I lived a little bit nicer, not crazy nicer, but I had a car payment on top of it. So actually it ended up being about the same as when I'd been living on the East coast um, and was maybe a little bit more economical with my rent and didn't have transportation in that same way. Wow. That's a great point. And, and, and like, that's the thing about money is all these decisions that we make have to constantly be these like cost benefit analysis. And yet so few people do the cost benefit analysis to make the decisions. They just go with their gut or like go with their motion and, you know, or do something that's more convenient. Uh, they go with these kind of visceral reactions to the reasons why they make financial decisions instead of kind of pulling back and being like, all right, let me actually, you know, if it's just like a little T-chart, you know, on this side, I'm going to put all the pros on this side, I'm going to put all the cons, see how it, you know, makes sense. In, in, in more than just um, a quick, convenient or emotional decision way. Um, and, and I think that's hard because it's like, we're making financial decisions all the time and pulling out the pen and paper to make a T-chart every time. It's, it's exhausting. I mean, and I get it, but I do think that there are certain financial decisions where it's so necessary and there's plenty of others where it's like, all right, it's not that serious. Like just make a decision. It's, it's really not going to make a huge impact on your long-term finances, but you know, those core and key big decisions like housing, food, transportation, you know, well, your employer um, benefits package, your lifestyle, all these kinds of things. Like these are, these are some of those bigger ones that do play a key role and don't jump into those decisions so quickly or think that small changes in those big decisions aren't a big de a deal because they are a big deal. Those are like the big, you know, the big players. Um, and they do matter. They matter quite a lot. 
totally agree. And one mistake I sometimes see people make is maybe you get this new job, fancy salary, and you're really excited to buy the fancy car, you sign the lease on the expensive apartment, and you don't do all the math. So I would say definitely run the numbers. And when you get a little older, one of the things I see people do too, is you buy the fancy house and then you have kids and you're like, oh my gosh, child cares as much as my rent. And that can also put people in a tough spot. But if you get the basics right, I don't sweat the how much I'm spending at the grocery store as much because I know if I'm at the grocery store, first of all, I'm winning. And second, that overall, you know, if I've gotten my housing, my transportation, my student loans for me, right, that the rest of it is going to kind of fall in place. So I think put that mental energy to the big things. That was so well put. Um, So let's talk about your professional pathway. We kind of, we kind of, you know, insinuated a little bit about some of the choices that you made as you moved up um, along your career path. But talk about your professional life, because we know, like, now you're an entrepreneur, you post a lot about your entrepreneurial work, but kind of talk us through how the the steps that kind of got you to that point. Um, After school, after college, you said you started working, we're pretty lucky in terms of, you know, being able to get a high income um, earning job. And then what kind of took you from there to the point where you were like, yep, entrepreneurship is the right move for me. So I've always, I guess, been a little bit risk or risk loving, maybe you could say, because I got a job in management consulting when I was a senior in college and talked them into letting me defer for a year so that I could go live on a farm. And that was super exciting. It was very scary because this was 2008, 2009. So the is um, crashing. I have student loans. I'm not sure if I'm going to have a job at the end of this or not, but I actually got lucky because I think that they ended up deferring a lot of offers. And so they were happy to not have to bring me on board until September, 2009, instead of right when I was first graduating. But I worked in management consulting for five years at Accenture and I was based in DC, got to work a lot with government agents, government agencies and nonprofits, which was really my passion in a lot of ways. The travel, you know, people talk about work travel like it's so glamorous. Being on an airplane Monday through Thursday, not my favorite thing in the world, right? Like I didn't actually live in DC for a year of it because I had a corporate apartment in Atlanta and was never actually in DC. But I really enjoyed the work that I got to do. I, you know, got to work on Habitat for Humanity strategic plan, which was sort of a, a dream for me but I really realized that I wanted to be closer to the action because I was doing strategy, but you don't actually get to implement stuff. So Mm. went back to business school, thought that I either wanted to start my own business or I was really passionate about food. And as it relates to education, how do we create a more equitable food system? So took a job out of business school, working for a grocery chain back in Texas and really wanted to try to understand, you know, how can we, make good food cheaper and more accessible to a wider number of people. Yeah. So thought I had this vision of what I was going to do with my life and got to the grocery store chain and realized as I was rotating through stores through this leadership development program I was in that at the store level, even though there was a great 401k plan, that there wasn't a lot of participation in the 401k. And it makes sense because if you're making $27,000 or $35,000, putting money away for the future is really hard, especially if you're supporting a family on that. And I also realized that a lot of the financial education was not in Spanish and Texas-based chain, San Antonio-based company, a large number of the people I was working with 
Spanish was their first language. And so really got passionate about how do we think about this access question of, of making it easier to sign up for the 401k, helping people think about their retirement and started to talk about this incessantly. So not just at work, but outside of work and realized that a lot of my friends had the same questions that my coworkers had about retirement. You know, what is a Roth account? Should I do mm. traditional? How much should I be putting into my 401k? And I will say that my initial dream is was to try to figure out uh, maybe a Spanish language product and a way to reach a large number of retail and, and service workers who have a great 401k at work, but don't necessarily have the educational background to make the right choice. But right. I started with um, sort of the community I know best, which is women with grad degrees, which is my peer group who were navigating these big decisions because that's sort of the people that I could speak to more directly. And yeah. that's sort of what led me to creating this business and trying to find a way to help more people make better choices and also just feel confident about the choices they're making, A, for retirement, but B, in all of these different financial arenas. I think that confidence is not, I mean, it just doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> like for somebody to be able to confidently log into an account, click on a couple of selections and submit and feel good about what they just did. That's huge, freaking huge. And the fact that most people have no idea. And so what they do is that fear and that uncertainty, it literally is the direct cause of inertia. Like people just don't do anything because they don't know what to do or because they're afraid that they're going to do the wrong thing and they don't want to feel dumb. So they don't ask questions because they don't want anybody to think that they don't know, even though they don't know. <laughs> so it's this weird cycle that just keeps repeating itself generation after generation. And it's like, at what point is it going to stop? Like it's just a, it's the stupidest cycle. And yet we keep seeing it, re, you know, just recur and keep happening. It's like, Oh my goodness. Things that just don't make sense. Keep happening. It just drives, it drives me crazy. And so to hear you say like, okay, let me be really intentional about people that I know I can impact like right away. And that's people that you like the relatability factor is so is so huge. People that can relate to you because of your experience that you're fresh out of an MBA program. You're thinking about, you know, making an impact using your, your degree to really do good. But then you also want to think about doing well also, because there, there has to be this balance. I want to do good, but I also want to do well. So that I'm not you know, struggling and I, I have a sense of security around my finances and being able to, to you know, provide for my family. And so just, you know, I, I, I do, I hear you saying like, oh, I really wanted the big vision was to be able to go really large scale and like do this thing in Spanish and, you know, help these communities that need. And it's like hundred percent totally get that. like so noble, but I really do think it's smart to start with a niche group that you do know really well. And that's going to teach you so much. It's not like you can't then go and take that as a stepping stone to go beyond and go serve a larger audience or go create something that's more scalable for, you know, a larger community that you know, might have a greater need. But I mean, I think the way you started was really smart and just being strategic, uh, which you have, you know, a background in strategic thinking. So that made sense. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Annalie. And I think that as I think about building the business too, it was important to me to not have to take outside capital. I skipped, there was one job in between working at the grocery store chain and deciding, okay, I'm going to do this full time. 
And that was a venture-backed company and learned and thought a lot about how do finances grow and scale and realized, A, I don't want to have to go back into debt. You know, I just got to debt-free, not excited to go back into that world. And two, that by starting a business that could be kind of cash flow positive, EBITDA positive from day one, so profitable the whole time, I was able to say, okay, you know, I don't have to have as much cash to get this business going. And as it grows, it's generating cash that I can then put into some of these other parts of the vision. So that was also really important to me. Like when you're an entrepreneur, you're also making a lot of financial decisions with what am I comfortable with? Sometimes you don't take a salary for 18 months. And I think that would have felt stressful to me to not be able to pay myself at all for some large period of time. And so it's been exciting too, to be able to launch a business that I could launch quickly, that I could reach my target audience quickly. And then as it builds, gives me more opportunity to do things that are more moonshot-y, if you will. Yeah. It's interesting because I do think it's, it's another risky thing, right? Like yet again, it's like, oh, I'm going to go live on this farm. I'm going to go do this thing. Like, okay, I'm going to create my own business. I don't have a lot of cash. Like you're, you're right in naming that you've kind of maybe always had a little bit of a thing for taking a, maybe a riskier alternative than the average person. Um, And there's even more examples of that. Now, as I started kind of looking up your story, I learned that in 2020, two big things happened for you. One, you got married. So congratulations. Uh, you know, getting married in 2020 was, I guess, a special, very special thing. You'll never forget your <laughs> pandemic wedding. <laughs> it was so beautiful and so wonderful. And we didn't want to wait, you know, we're old and wasn't sure when are we going to be able to have the wedding that we would have wanted normally. Yeah. And also I have a huge family. We both have a lot of friends. There was no way we would have been able to have something that was really small and intimate. And I wish it hadn't been stressful. You know, we had 35 people, it was outside, everybody got tested beforehand, but I think I I could wish that that it had been a little easier to hug. We did a lot of like the Russian sailor dancing where you're like far (laughs) away from other people, but still trying to dance with them. And we didn't have a full reception. We had like an hour of of dancing and then cut it off. And and that was special because I actually got to spend more of my wedding night just with my husband, which I feel like most people are are partying until two o'clock in the morning. And and right. so there were definitely perks to it, but I would say I, I wish not all the people that I love the most could be there. So, but it was the right decision for us. And I'm really grateful that we're not still planning a wedding because um, that is a lot of work and a lot of stress mm-hmm. and very expensive. And yeah. Um, yeah, we're just excited to be newlyweds and, and be enjoying that period of life together too. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it is definitely stressful. I, and it is also expensive. I I know that's right, but it's also, it's also stressful to start to like quit your nine to five and start your own venture. Like in the middle of a pandemic, there's so much uncertainty. There's, you know, like there's literally the world is kind of paused and we don't know what the future is going to look like. Um, yet you kind of embraced that and said, yep, this is the right time for me to become an entrepreneur. So um, tell us about that. Like what led you to make that decision and how did you find the courage to do that even through that uncertainty? I have a good friend who I'll send this recording to and give her a shout out who has really been my strategic advisor in a lot of ways. And when I was first talking about this business and thinking about my business plan, I was trying to decide 
what are the metrics that I need to hit for me to feel comfortable quitting my job? Because I had sort of started this as a side hustle, as a lot of people do, and was trying to decide, do I need to make as much money as I'm making in my full-time job to be able to quit? And that felt really scary. And like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that for a long time, especially working two jobs at once. And so she helped me set a revenue goal, which for me was $30,000. And so if I could make $30,000 with my business without um, quitting my job, then it felt like, okay, if I quit my job and I have a hundred percent of my time available, instead of 10 to 15% of my time available, then I can do this. And so hit that revenue goal and said, onwards and upwards, like, let's, let's figure this out. And that also that money served as an addition to the emergency fund that I had personally, that was sort of a, a business fund where if I make no money for six months, I have a really good cushion there. And that also was enforced by the fact that my husband and I were already living pretty frugally. And at that point I had no student loans. I had no car debt. We weren't paying that much in rent. Um, and so I knew that to support my lifestyle, I don't need that much cash to be coming in. And that also, I think, really enabled me to say, okay, let's do this. Like, I'm in a moment in my life where I have the economic stability that I can take a risk and, and it'll be okay, even if it doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. I, I like that, you know, having all of the different metrics and looking at the data and having a very specific goal set before even taking that leap. It just, it just, it's a, it's a risk, but it's clearly a calculated risk. And I think that's, you know, how we should be talking more about everything when it comes to financial risk taking It should be calculating that risk and getting to a point where you feel like that confidence behind that decision. Um, but you, you mentioned cash, like not needing too much cash. And it's interesting because one of your, I think it's the most recent blog post that you have up on your link tree on your Instagram. One of the main things on that post was like the tips that you would provide for millennials now kind of after, you know, thinking about all your, your financial decisions that you've made in life. And one of them was don't keep too much cash, which was interesting to me because I feel like I also have that mentality of like, or just that approach to my finances of keeping a pretty low emergency fund. Like usually it's been, you know, five or six months recently since COVID it went up to nine months. And even that I feel like for the personal finance space is a little more conservative or like when I talk to people, they're like, really, that's it. You only have nine months in your savings. I'm like, yeah. And that, and it, to me, it feels like a lot, but when COVID hit, I think a lot of people realized that maybe the amount of cash that they had wasn't enough. And then when the stock market started soaring, uh, you know, against popular belief, people were shocked, like, wait, what? We thought the stock market was going to take years to recover. Now it's booming. And then other people were like, oh, maybe I have too much cash. Oh, no. And then this conversation of like how much cash we have really kind of blew up. So anyway, seeing that in your blog post, and then also just hearing you mention it, it kind of led me to think like, how do you approach this decision of how much cash is right for me? Um, And how, you know, do you think people should make that decision? Like, why is it so bad for people to have too much cash? And why do you think people do have either too much or too little cash and not feel like they have, they, you know, understand just the right amount of cash for their situation? I think that this is a great question and it's what I think a lot of people grapple with the most and especially when they're just starting out because you're trying to figure out should I invest should I keep it in cash etc etc so for me I think that four to 12 months of an emergency fund is the range for most people and that's a huge range obviously so how do you decide where you fall within that 
if you're single and you know you could move back in with your parents and you're comfortable with that for some period of time, then maybe four months is right for you because you know, hey, if I was really out of work for a long period of time, that would be the option that I would choose. It also, that probably only makes sense if you're renting, if you own, you probably want to have more, A, because you're not as flexible in terms of being able to cut down your housing costs, but two, if something breaks on the house and you need a new refrigerator, suddenly you want to have a little bit more cash in, in the bank. Right. The second piece is, you know, are you part of a dual income household? So in that case, you're kind of each other's emergency fund. If you work in the same industry or you work at the same employer, maybe not quite as much, but you know, my husband's a scientist. He, he does nothing related at all to my entrepreneurial <laughs> endeavors. And so if I were to have a period where I couldn't work because of a medical emergency or you know, if the business just tanked, you know, we could totally rely on just his income and the other way around as well. And so mm -hmm. if you are in a dual income household, I would say that also would push you probably maybe closer to the five to six month range instead of needing a full year. It's when you have, in my opinion, people who rely on your income and that's not just kids. That could be if you have family that you support in some way. I know people who support siblings or parents. Right. I think right. one in five millennials is already supporting our parents in some way. Mm. Yeah. So if there's people who rely on you, that's where I think having nine, 10, 11, 12 months of expenses makes sense. If you're in a really cyclical industry, or if you are in a, um, a commission-based role or a sales-based role where you don't know how much money you're going to make every year, that's where I would say having more money, especially if maybe you have kids and you know that you want to keep them in the same school, no matter what's going on with you. Right having more of an emergency fund is going to make sense there. So I actually um, did a bunch of posts on how I think about how much cash to have on hand, because I think feeling confident in that number is the first step to then feeling confident in investing. Yeah. And maybe that's a segue to the second part of your question, which is why is it bad to have cash? Yeah. Inflation last month was 5.3%. And that's <laughs> yeah. not going to stay right. Crazy. If you've, if you've filled your car up at the gas pump or, you know, tried to rent a car, actually, you have definitely seen prices are going up. So inflation is not your friend. It's average 3% a year. And it's pretty well documented. Women are more conservative than men. And especially because I, I work with a population post-grad school and not just MBAs at this point, I work with a lot of MDs, lawyers as well. And so Let's imagine, and, and this happens particularly for physicians, you're in training, you're in training, you're in training. All of a sudden your salary like quadruples and maybe you have $300,000 in student loans, which is very right. scary, but you also now are making a lot more money. And if you don't give a home, if you will, to all those dollars, what ends up happening is you just have cash growing in your checking account. And that's really help keeping you from building wealth in a lot of ways because that cash right. is actually losing value every right, year. Right. We we say growing in your checking account, but it's actually it feels like it's growing because the number goes up every new paycheck, but it is not growing. It's losing value. And we just it's counterintuitive because we see the number going up, but the value of that amount is actually going down at the same time, which is really which is what the scary aspect of it is. And you don't understand inflation that kind of doesn't make sense but you're you're absolutely right it's this false feeling of my money going up in my checking account when really it's not well and i think it gives people a sense of security to say oh i have this yeah. cash on hand but also with the audience i work with you know you just got a grad degree 
or if you are in medicine, you've taken many years of your life to train. So maybe you're later getting started saving for retirement, which for just about everybody is the biggest goal you're going to be saving for. And so if you are letting that money sit in cash instead of putting it into a retirement account where it can be growing for you, or even just investing it in the market, if you're not going to touch that money for 20, 30, 40 years in some instances, then continuing to keep it in cash, you know, not only is it losing money to inflation, but you're also not giving it the opportunity to grow. And if you've taken time out of the workforce to focus on investing in yourself, it's, it's just so important that you are giving your money the chance to grow. And also it's just part of the investing gap. Women don't invest at the same rate as men. So it's part of the reason that there is a wealth gap is that if the guy sitting right. next to you is putting his money in the market and you have it in cash, that's a problem. And, and yes, you need to have an emergency fund. I, I don't want anyone to say, oh, I'm putting all my money in cash or all my money right. in the market now. Do not do that. Right. right. But once you've figured out what the right emergency fund is for you, and maybe you're saving for a down payment on a house or something else, you're planning to use that money in the next year to two years. But if, if you don't have a goal for that cash and it's just sitting there, it, it's not helping you. That's right. That's absolutely right. And you mentioned the wealth gap, um, the gender wealth gap. There's so many different types of wealth gaps, but let's focus on the one between women and men. And I think that the the reason you pointed out is key, which is men invest much more often. And um, when they do invest, they put more dollars and women don't invest as often and don't invest as, invest as much. Uh, don't start as early, et cetera, right? So there's all these kind of you know, reasons why we um, are lagging behind men when it comes to investing to build wealth. You work with so many different women. What, why in your experience and in the work that you've done, what have you seen um, as the main causes, like the reasons why women are holding back to take that step to invest? What's, you know, what's holding them back from feeling like investing is important, it's the right move and I have to do it now versus you know, either not thinking about it or putting it off for X amount of time into the future? It's a really good question and a question I get a lot and I, I think maybe sums up a lot of how women feel is right now the market is at an all-time high even with this recent dip I think it's still at an all-time high and so people say should I still invest you know the market is so high right now and I think that as women we're naturally caretakers and I I hesitate to have some of this conversation because I feel like it it reifies some of the stereotypes of, of how women think and feel. But I think a lot of women identify, if you were to give them the quiz that a lot of investment advisors give you of how risk averse are you? They just naturally say, oh, I'm more risk averse. And men tend to identify as less risk averse. And so I think that fear of if I invest, could I lose it all? Am I making the wrong decision right now? is right. often what leads women to sit it out. And I also think it's just more taboo to talk about money as women. And so, you know, part of why I started this, I was at a dinner party and the men were sitting in the corner talking about money and the women were on the other side of the room. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but it was not money. And so I think when you have a peer group that you can discuss investing with, when there's peer pressure to invest, is when I think people feel more comfortable to say, oh, I'm gonna get in. And that can be bad because I think that there are men who have like all their money in Bitcoin or the latest yeah. meme stock. Don't do that either. Right. When we do invest, women tend to be better investors because yeah. tend to not mess with the money once it's invested. We're not day trading with it. Right. But 
just getting the first courage to take that plunge is I think what's harder. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, I think the point too, is not necessarily like, is it in Bitcoin? Is it all in this? Is it all in that? It's, it's just the fact that it's not diversified is the problem. It doesn't matter. You could literally say, oh, I'm going to put all my money in blank, fill the blank. It could be whatever crypto, it could be whatever stock, it could be whatever. The point is having all your money in one thing is a risk in and of itself. And it's just not a smart approach to investing because of the basic fundamental principle of investing in a savvy way, which is diversified, taking a diversified approach. And you know, again, because a lot of this is not taught in schools and people don't, you know, ever really wrap their heads around what is true diversification or what are the different types of diversification you could have, right? Because you could diversify within a certain sector or you could diversify like at large, the types of investments that you have, or you can diversify the assets. You, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Um, and so I think it's such a good point to make is like, yep, women are a lot more likely to, when they do invest, to really dive into those fundamentals. And because women don't like to just like do something and they don't know what the heck they're doing, right? Like it's very rare that you find a woman who's like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just whatever, click anything. It's fine or whatever to work itself out. Like we tend to, as women, we tend to be like, no, 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 I need to like read and I need to like learn the things that ask the questions and take my notes. And then I will be able to have the confidence to make the decision. And when it comes to investing, that's a good thing, but it, it can also have a downside, which is that it, all the time it takes us to look up the terms and read the books and do all the research. Like, that's all time that we're not investing. Um, we're not putting money in the market during that time. And men are like, I'm ready right now. I don't even understand what this means, but hey, it's making money. That's enough information for me to put in 10 grand, right? There's this higher level of comfortability with risk. Generally speaking, I hate generalizing for genders, but that's you know what a lot of the data shows. And so to your point, it's like, it doesn't really matter what the thing is that's hot and trendy, like, or whatever people are talking about trading, you really just need to have a diversified approach for investing to be okay over the long run. And it doesn't matter when the market is up or whether it's down or if it's an all-time high or an all-time low. Like at the end of the day, making sure that you're diversifying the way that you invest your money and just holding it for a really long time, you're essentially, you know, going to do well. How well relative to others? Like it doesn't matter. We're not sitting here with a measuring stick comparing, oh, you got 1% more, you got 2.2%. Oh man. I mean, it's like comparing your like A plus to somebody's A minus. Like, are you really that upset over something so like minuscule um i think at the end of the day like if you're putting in your effort and you're doing things right and you're working hard you're going to be happy with your result and and it's true if more people knew that especially women if more women understood that we probably wouldn't have as much of a, of a gap when it comes to investing getting started investing and then also you know feeling confident with investing once you do jump in so if you're listening to this and you got a lot of cash and you're trying to wait for the right side or right time to jump in and I'll say, you know, whenever you invest, there's some risk, but just getting started, you know, maybe if you've got 10K and you're trying to figure out the right time, maybe you put 1K in a month for the next 10 months or, or 2K a month for the next five months, whatever is going to make you feel comfortable and there's diversified ways to invest, you know, look up total stock market index funds or S&P 500 index funds, because those are inherently diversified. You're investing in all the biggest companies in the United States or all companies that are publicly traded in the United States. And that way you don't have to pick the next Tesla. As new companies come about, they get added to these indexes. As companies don't do as well, they get taken out of these indices. I can't pronounce that word today for some reason. And I say both all the time. I go back and forth. Indexes, indices, they're both correct, but you're fine. Thank you. Yeah, I love that point. It's such a great 
tidbit of advice, like literally as soon as this episode is over, go and start like, just look up the very basics and then start because the, the, the thing is as women, we're like, okay, I have all these goals. Like at first I want to understand what an index fund is. And, but then that takes you down this rabbit hole. Oh wait, an index fund is a type of mutual fund. So now I got to go back and research what are mutual funds. Oh, there's different types of mutual funds. There's actively managed mutual funds and there's passively managed mutual funds. So now I got to go in that down that rabbit hole. Okay. Now it's like, Oh, what's the difference? Oh, one has a manager that charges fees that are higher than the other one, which is automated. Let me look at what a mutual fund manager charges. And now you're down that rabbit hole. If you can go on forever, and especially if you're like a bit more nerdy, like us, hashtag proud nerd, you, you'll go down the rabbit hole and you won't stop. So at the end of the day, it's like, you don't need to know all the things. You just need to know the basics to get started. And then once you put your money in, the money's going to start, you know, working for you. And that gives you time to now continue to go read and learn more. Cause you can always go back and change your approach. If you, you know, if you picked a, a fund that you don't really like, you can go back and just change it and buy shares of a different fund anytime. You're not setting in stone your approach when you get started, but the earlier you start, the better off it'll be. So just, you know, don't let these decisions hold you back. You know, just at the end of the day, I think, honestly, if, you know, if you just go any, mini money, mo, you'll be fine. Cause you'll be starting like picking a brokerage firm. Which one do I pick? Any, mini money, mo. just start. You can always change it later. Okay. But then what index fund, any, mini money, mo. pick one. You can always change it later. Like literally if it's taking you more than one, two, three days to make these decisions, you're taking too long. Like just get started. That's the thing. <laughs> I love that because yes, you can always change as you learn more. None of these decisions are written in stone. And as long as you have diversified your money and you're not making decisions to put it all into one, whatever that hot thing is, you're, you're going to be okay over time. And one of my favorite books that I recommend to everyone who takes my class is The Simple Path to Wealth. And I think my it's favorite. a super quick read and gives you all the basics. So if you yes. are getting stuck doing all that research, I think there are really good books and courses out there that can kind of help you feel confident to take the leap. So you're not kind of getting stuck in, in that research uh, rabbit hole. I absolutely agree. And I 100% second, that is my favorite book. I'm sure I've mentioned it on the podcast a billion times and on my Instagram, but JL Collins does an amazing job of writing to uh, from a father's perspective to a daughter's and just it's just so well written it's fun to read there's little parables in there um, little fun stories and things that kind of break up the chapters and it's just it really is an easy read cover to cover because it's it's like you're reading a book that your dad or your uncle kind of wrote for you as a young woman it's it's especially for young women I think it's a, a great book but it's good for anybody it's just a great read um, okay, so this is a great place to transition to a money mantra. This is one of my last questions. Um, money mantra to me is just like this idea that like people are using dollars all the time to do all kinds of transactions. And after the fact, we go back and think about it. Oh man, wait, maybe I shouldn't have got that. Or maybe I could have gotten on sale somewhere if I had you know, spent a little more time. And so this money mantra or money message, it's going to go right on the dollar bill. And I'll like use this little image to promote the episode because I guess it's important that while you're using the dollars, you keep this mantra in the forefront of your mind, like your North star in terms of like the, the money decisions that you make and how you want to make them. So, um, so yeah, what would your money message or money mantra be? This is one I say all the time and I, I am definitely taking this from Paula Pant, but you can have anything, but not everything. So yes. there's always trade-offs and make the choices that are going to be right for you. 
know what you value, you know, like, and you talked about this, Aaron, you just talked about this earlier where you're like, for me, I didn't necessarily value like a super fancy luxurious apartments because I wanted to travel more. And so lowering the cost of living for myself at that age allowed me to value travel. And so I couldn't have everything. I couldn't have the fancy apartment and the traveling, but I got the traveling because I valued it more. So that's, you know, again, if you follow that philosophy of thinking with every decision you make, like, yeah, you'll definitely be on the right track. Um, all right. If you do not already follow Erin, you need to. She's on Instagram, her dot personal dot finance. Erin with a Y, E R Y N. Y'all need to go <laughs> follow her because all the information on there is just so um, digestible, easy to understand, relatable. There's so much information that you jam pack into these short little reels and little tidbits of information. So I, I really appreciate that all the just, yeah, again, that relatability of your platform. Um, but if there's anything else that, folks listening or watching on YouTube can do to support you, to follow your work, um, or maybe they want to work with you. If there's a woman out there who, you know, higher education, you know, pursuing or just finished and is like, oh, I could work with Erin. Like, how can they do that? So I'm actually launching my first on-demand class where you can take it Ooh. completely at your own pace in the middle of this month. So if I'm not sure when this episode is going to be coming out, but the class is, is launching October 18th. So if you really want to go through kind of a a seven week boot camp, and there's a lot of exercises to really help you take some of these abstract ideas of how much emergency fund should I have, how much cash is right for me, and do some calculations based on your spending to figure that out. Do things like figure out where is all my money across all my different investments, and does this make sense for me? Um, would love for you to check that out. So um, there will definitely be links on my Instagram, but you can also go to my website, which is herpersonalfinance.com. And Annalie, I'm just so grateful for you sharing this platform and creating space for promoting other women. Of course. Thank you so much, Erin. I can't wait to share this episode. It'll be out just a couple of weeks after you launch your course. So folks will still be able to kind of go check it out. It'll still be fairly recent. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and for connecting. Um, we'll stay in touch, of course. And I'm just so glad we got to get to know each other a little better today. Me too. Um, really wonderful to talk and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Bye.